and welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. We're back. Or did we never leave? That's right. Your boys made it back. We took last week off. And by off, I mean it was not off. I just, my evening was taken up by something a little more important. I don't do that often. Huh? I'm pretty, I'm pretty disciplined to do this every week, but occasionally there will be something that comes on my recording day, and if you run a pretty tight schedule, and you got lots of stuff that you do, it's not like you can just change to another evening, because that, that evening is already spoken for, and so that's why I uploaded the sermon. I've been wanting to upload a sermon anyway. What'd you think of that? Feel free to let me know. I'm just sitting here in my, in my beautiful studio, sipping my tea. Ah, sipping tea, man. What's the best kind of tea? That's a trick question. It's obviously English breakfast. It's, it's, it's the best tea. Sweet tea in the summer, cross my heart, won't tell no other. You know? Oh, if you know, you know. I might be sipping my tea, but another thing I've been sipping on is this new series we're getting into. Yes, that, that is a great segue. We are starting a new series. We finished up with Denominational Talk, and now we are going to have a new series. Uh, it's going to be multi-week, and I'm calling, I'm calling it The Kingdom Builder. The Kingdom Builder. And if you have been on my website, what's this? You didn't know I had a website? Oh, yeah, I, I actually have a website. Uh, you can find that at www.podpagepodpage.com slash city of the great king. Now you know. But on my website, I have a little banner in blue at the top of it, at the top of the front page, and it says, this is a podcast for kingdom builders. I chose that banner months ago when this started. A podcast for kingdom builders. Which, of course, the kingdom being God's kingdom and, and us being the ones God uses to build it. And so this new series is going to focus on the attitudes and the actions of productive citizens of God's city. So the full title, title and subtitle, The Kingdom Builder, Attitudes and Actions of Productive Citizens of God's City. This is going to be multi-week. We're going to take a look at attitudes and actions in their course, and today we are going to begin. This is not in a. This is not going to be exhaustive, and it's not in any particularly special order. But the number one thing we're going to look at for a kingdom builder, attitudes and actions of productive citizens of God's city, is confessional. Confessional. Do you know what it means to be confessional, or is this one of the first times you've ever heard that before? My first time hearing about confessionalism was when I was in Bible college. And I heard it from some of the students who I brought up in a prior or in a previous episode. The ones who were reforming, they were bringing up these confessions. Confessions I had never heard about. And I had cer certainly known about some of the creeds, you know, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Um, I had heard about those before, and I think I'd even read them at some point as a teenager. But um, I didn't know what a confession was. I did, certainly couldn't have named the confessions, nor did I know any creeds outside of the aforementioned two. 
So I didn't know much about confessionalism, and I also didn't know how important it would become to me. I think confessionalism is highly important, and if you're going to be a kingdom builder, uh, my the argument I am making is that you will be a confessional builder. So let's get into it. What is a what is it? mean to be confessional. What is a confession? A confession is just a summary of beliefs or a summary of teaching. We confess this about whatever the topic is. It's a summary. You are not necessarily going to say everything about every topic, but you are going to touch on various different things. It is your summary of beliefs, summary of teaching. There are movements in Christian and church history which have sought to downplay confessions in Christian life. Now, the church historically has always affirmed creeds and confessions. We'll get into that in a bit. But there are some groups, especially over the last few hundred years, that have come to this idea that we don't need these anymore. We don't need to be confessional. And often a tagline that's associated with these groups is, No creed but Christ. Okay, no creed but Christ. That sounds very uh, pious, you know, that Christ is your only confession. Uh, you're, you know, I don't need all these man-made systems and doctrines, this is the way they put it. Uh, I just need Christ. My, my creed is Christ. Okay, great. My creed is Christ, too. I love that. But um, tell me, who is Christ? As soon as they start answering that question, they are giving you a creed. Like, okay, nice, nice creed you have there. You're now summarizing your beliefs and teaching about Christ. So... The, the, the sentence, no creed but Christ, is a pretty absurd sentence on its face. We are all, we all believe things about the stuff we say. And it's the accumulation of what you believe about what you say that is your confession. So everybody has a creed of some kind. It's unavoidable. Your confession is Christ. If you're a Christian, your confession is Christ. Great. And so is mine. Uh, but now we have to answer as to who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he's about, when he came, all these different types of things. You're now getting into your confession, your creed, the summary of your beliefs and teachings. Now, Christians are not on an island. This is something I've said, I think, repeatedly. We are not on an island. We are not isolationists. We are not on our own. Uh, we have a deep and rich history of summarizing our beliefs. And those are put into creeds and confessions. The Apostles' Creed, for instance, it was not directly written by the Apostles themselves, but it was taken by those shortly after. It's their earliest uh, total creed, I guess you could say, that we have. Um, but everything in it is very clearly right from the Bible. And to summarize what the Apostles taught about... Um, about Christ, about the Father, about all that type of stuff. So it was, it's a very nice creed. And so we have that one. We have the Nicene Creed, which came a bit later. There's the Const Constantinople one as well. We have the Athanasius Creed. Like We've got various types of creeds. The church has been doing this for a long time. We have a deep and rich history of summarizing our beliefs in creeds and confessions. We're not on an island. We're not the first Christians to come out onto the scene. So... Already, just to be a Christian means you are united with all believers. And that's not just all believers today. That's all believers down through the line. So you have a unity with the believers who were alive 1,500 years ago and wrote some of these creeds. You'll be with them in glory. You know that, right? You're going to be with these people in glory. You are unified with them. And so we are not on an island. We always have been summarizing beliefs. 
So the point is that kingdom building, or I should say a kingdom builder, must know what and for whom he is building. If you don't know the Jesus who you stand for, you're not building for him. You need to know who Jesus is. He's some guru. He's a highly enlightened man. So you can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's an enlightened man only. He sets a good moral example for us. See, okay, you're not a kingdom builder then. That, that's not the way that the scriptures describe Jesus is. Now, he certainly can inspire us morally, but he's a whole lot more than that. And so you need to know what and for whom you're building. And confessions help us do that. Confessions have always been part of God's people. Let's even go back to the Old Testament. The most basic confession that, was, that Israelites uh, would, would say every morning and every evening is the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You say that in the morning. You say it to your children. In the evening time, you're home from work, had dinner. You say the Shema again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Two times a day, every day. That was a basic confession or a basic creed that they would have. The Israelites also confessed their faith in that one God. So they said, the Lord is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who is that Lord? They then confessed their faith in that Lord when they worshipped at the tabernacle in the temple. There's this cool story in Deuteronomy 26. It's not really a, a narrative so much, but it says, uh, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 26. If you have a Bible, it's worth turning to. I think it's pretty cool. So this is what the, what the people are being told. Deuteronomy 26, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. Okay, so you got to gather up some first fruits, gather up some, some stuff and you're, when the Lord reveals the place that he wants to be worshipped, you're going to go bring it there. Verse 3, And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest, so you already have a confessional statement right there. I'm coming into the land that the Lord swore to, gave, uh, swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 5, this is when you should start paying attention. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. Quote, A wandering Aramean, that's referring to Jacob, was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, and humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. End quote. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Okay, so those verses in there, 5 through 9, 
make that five through ten, those were a confession that you would have to give. You'd have your offering ready, and you would have to give that confession then to the priest who is there, who would accept your offering, and you were then to give your praise, give your thanks to the Lord in that land. It's a confession statement that the Israelites were given already way back then. This is not unique only to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have a confessional statement as well. In the, in the letter to the Ephesians, there is a confession there that's believed it was recited when a new convert was baptized. And this is in Ephesians 4. I'll just say it quickly. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it says this, There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's believed that that line there, was used when a new convert was being baptized. They had to announce that confession, that they were being baptized into the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. And you see the connection that that has to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so in the New Testament uh, confession of this, they're repeating it here and adding a bit to it because the covenant was expanded. But one body, one spirit, one Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it's connecting it, Old and New Testament. There's confessions all from the beginning. And even when Christ came, there's a confession. And then, of course, there were the other creeds and confessions that I already said, Apostles, Nicene, Athanasius, up to and after the Reformation. And the Reformation came out with some more confessions. This happened in response to the compromised Roman Catholic Church. Uh, because of that, the Reformation kicked off, because they saw that the Roman Catholic, the way that the Catholics were running things was no longer a true church, essentially. The Reformation kicks off, and out of it, complete confessions were drafted to summarize what the Bible teaches and what Reformed Christians believe. So these confessions were not meant to be like, um, this is a confession just for Reformed Presbyterians only. This is just if you're a Baptist, you get to have this. Now, these confessions were to show we belong to the church that goes all the way back through the ages. We're not coming up with new stuff, uh, per se. We are summarizing doctrine in response to the time and day that we live in as faithful summaries of what the Bible teaches about these things. The church has always been doing that. And so then when it comes to these confessions, summarizing what Reformed Christians believe. It's not saying only if you call yourself a Reformed Christian you believe this. It just Reformed just meant Reformed to the Word of God. Because they believed that the Catholic Church was no longer uh, doing itself based on the Word of God. So you Reformed back to it. And so it's, it was supposed to be a universal thing. Now, what are these confessions by name? They include the Canons of Dort, uh, not the Canons of Dork the Canons of Dort. And this was a response to another article, which was the Remonstrance. And the Remonstrance was Arminian theology. So in response to Arminian theology, the Reformers came out with the Canons of Dort, which is where we get the acronym, like the acronym TULIP kind of came from there. Another one is the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a beautiful catechism. And then the other is, a, is called the Belgic Confession. So those three things, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Belgic Confession, these three make up what is called the three forms of unity. And a lot of Reformed churches have held those as their 
standard of faith. Like, if you want to know what we believe, three forms of unity. Uh, over in Britain, they came out with another confession, and this is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it also included the Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as well as a fourth document, which most people forget, the Directory of Public Worship. So the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechism, and the Directory of Public Worship make up what's called the Westminster Standards. So you have the three forms of unity and the Westminster Standards uh, as confessions that have come out to summarize Reformed faith, but not long after that came the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So the London Baptist Confession of Faith was Baptists who were Reformed in their thinking, showing where they disagreed with some of the things that were in the Westminster Standards uh, part in particular, because it copies the Westminster Confession almost word for word, unless they have a different way of understanding it. And so, and that was finished in 1689, so it's also called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So you have all these confessions uh, th that have come out. You got the three forms of unity, you got the Westminster Standards, and then the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Great confessions. Now, they don't fully agree with one another, but they are, they're in the same strand, at least. And they are summaries of doctrine, summaries of what the Bible teaches. And it was very important back then to come out with these types of things. And this is what the Reformed churches have mostly based themselves on. They, we also all confess together the Nicene Creed. We all confess the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we also confess then, be it the London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Standards or the Three Forms of Unity, whichever it is. But this was just another one of those documents that the church has come up with to universally agree upon. Except we don't. And if you want to know my thoughts about how about the reason that we can't universally agree on things anymore, you can go check out the denomination series, which was before this. But let, let's ask a question. We have all these confessions. Why should I be confessional? Like, why is this even important? Like, I've said a couple things already about that, but uh, let, let's repeat a couple things. A confession summarizes or explains your beliefs. It gives you a standard. That's what's really important about a confession. It explains what you believe. It doesn't just say it. It explains it too. For instance, what is sin? Try to come up in your mind with a definition for sin. Do you have one? Because we use that word a lot. What does it mean? What does it mean that I sinned against God? I'll give you an answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. All right, what do you think of that definition? It's not original. <laughs> Sin is any want of conformity unto. Okay, any want. I'm wanting to conform to something. It is anything in me that wants or transgression of. Okay, so the, the accomplishment of it too. So sin is something, a, a desire in me to want to do something or actually doing something against the law of God. Okay, law of God. Okay, so I'm supposed to hold to the law of God and I know that I'm in sin if I'm desiring something contrary to it or I am transgressing by action the law of God. Both my desires and my actions 
can be against the law of God. And anything I do then, that is what sin is. Can you see why it would be important to have a definition like that? So we can talk a lot about sin, but if you don't define that sin is desiring or actually breaking the law of God, you don't have much of a standard for calling something out to even be sin, if you can't explain what it is. By the way, that definition came from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14. And I gave another line earlier in the intro. Maybe some of you caught it. Did you hear that? Did you hear that line? Sweet tea in the summer, cross my heart, won't tell no other. That is a, a line from a song from one of the greatest philosophers of our day, Taylor Swift. Um, <clears throat> and she says that in one of her songs. And I said that line, and anybody who has listened to that song before or has heard that line, like, it takes you to somewhere. It takes you to the person who said it, and you can put yourself in that context, and, and we can share a moment or whatever. So when I answer that, when I give that answer to that question, probably some of you have heard that answer before. Uh, anybody who has raised somewhat confessionally probably got that answer at one point. Or how about this? Have you, do you hear people ask the question a lot, like, what is my purpose in life? You know, what am I even here for? What's the point of all of this? Isn't this just all just like endless chaos until I die? I can't know anything, and I just stop existing? What's the point? Well, there's another question in the Catechism that frames it a little bit differently, but it's getting the same idea. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is our goal? What are we here for? What's my purpose? You want to know the answer? You probably know it. Some of you. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Hmm. Don't ever ask what your point is of being here. You're, the reason that you are here is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why. And I get that from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. It's right there in the beginning. What's my life about? Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. It's really helpful to have a statement like that, to have a definition, to have a standard by which I believe. Now, another reason, why should I be confessional? It gives me a standard, or at least it's explaining what is my ultimate standard, which is scripture. But it's explaining it. It's a faithful interpretation of it. Uh, confessions also unify us, and this connects with my point before. It gives us that, that, that line of connection with Christians down through the ages. When we can hold to a confession that Christians before us drafted and held to, it connects us with them. Can you imagine churches today that do not believe or would say that they reject the Apostles' Creed? Like, you wouldn't even say that they're Christian. Or they deny the Nicene Creed. The doctrine of the Trinity that's in there, or, or the natures of Christ being fully man, and or true man and true God. Like if, if any church or any group of Christians denies those documents, like you, you, what they're saying, it's the, the big deal is not that they're denying the Creed or the Confession. The big deal is that they're denying what Scripture plainly teaches. And it's the Creed and the Confession that is summarizing for us what is all over the Bible, what it's teaching. So when we are confessional, we are saying that we are unified with believers before us, which means we are also saying 
that we are not the smartest Christians to ever walk upon the face of the earth, that we have it all together. We're smarter than those before us, than those brilliant people who wrote the confessions of antiquity. But no, we don't need those. We, we can do it all on our own today. We don't need to go into the past. We can write better stuff. That's, that's arrogant. Now, can we write new confessions? I'll get to that later on. We can. But my point is, it connects us with Christians down through the ages. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just trying to understand what the Bible teaches. Okay. So also, why should I be confessional? Confessions give us a means for discipline in the church. How do you know that somebody is going into heresy? You know, there's all these terms, Eutychianism, Nestorianism. Those are ancient heresies, but if you didn't have these types of things defined, you could have somebody teaching Nestorianism or Eutychianism, and you would have no means for disciplining them in, in the spreading of that teaching. Because the way that we talk, we can word things in such a way that it sounds innocent, it sounds like you can have a verse to support it. You know, you can take the Bible out of context a hundred different ways to support some dubious claim, or even just to teach abject heresy. You can reinterpret the Bible and do that. So confessions give us a means for being able to discipline those who are going outside the bounds of Scripture. Now, those uh, heresies that I'm talking about had to do with the nature of Christ. And that's a pretty important thing, to, to be clear on who Christ is, at least as far as the Bible tells us. So it helps us be able to discipline those who go outside of what the Scripture teaches. And then it also, confessions will make us precise about what we believe and why we believe it. It's important to be precise. When we're not precise, when language is fuzzy and it's not clear, you can sneak a truckload of things past orthodoxy. You can put a Trojan horse in unclear language. This is why language in the court has to be extremely simple and clear to understand. And you run into tons of problems if the language is not clear. We need to be precise about what we believe, what we're confessing about who Jesus is, who the Lord is, what happened at creation, what's the mission of the church, what even is the church, who is the church, all these types of things. We, begin, we become precise in what we are confessing, which is good. Now, a lot of us are probably not in classically confessional churches. Pull up your church's website and go see under the About Us or What We Believe page and see, do they have in there our, what we believe can be found in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith? Does it say... Our, our, our confession is the three forms of unity, or the Westminster Standards. Nope, your church probably has what's called a statement of faith. A statement of faith. Is that the same thing? Is a statement of faith the same thing as a confession? Okay, so it certainly is a summary of belief. So there is some overlap, but we have to be honest about the fact that an individual church's or an individual denomination's statement of faith is not the same thing as the historic confessions. A, the, the historic confessions and creeds have widespread acceptance. The church at large confesses them. 
Nicene apostles are the are the clearest examples. The whole church confesses those things. And even the standards that I mentioned before, three forms, Westminster, 1689, are have been confessed by plenty of churches. The church at large, essentially. And that is a mark of confessionalism, is that the church at large holds to them. Now, so a statement of faith is a type of creed, but even when you read a statement of faith, again, if you go to your own church's website and, and, and go read it, you will see that it doesn't have the explanatory power of past and proven confessions. Uh, you start going through the topics, it doesn't say much. It only has it has a paragraph or two on maybe eight to twelve different sections uh, of doctrine. It doesn't say all that much. It doesn't. Ex it certainly doesn't explain and define very much. It just it says a few basic uh, doctrinal state stances, which is fine. It, it it's helpful, but um, it doesn't have the same explanatory power of past and proven confessions. It's not confessed outside your own church or your own denomination. So each denomination essentially has its own statement of faith that all the churches just in their federation or their denomination adheres to and has to confess. But it's completely different for another denomination or another church. So it's very limited. It's limited also in its scope. You read this thing, you're not getting a hundred different points of doctrine. You're getting just a handful. So it's limited in its scope and it's shallow in depth. Like I said, just a paragraph or two of explanation per thing. Sometimes just a sentence or two is all that you get in terms of what you are mutually confessing with the church. Not only that, but these statements of faith are made by individuals or small groups only, as opposed to these historic confessions, which were corporate uh, entities th that were coming together with collective wisdom from the widespread church, and you sometimes even over years. The Westminster Confession took years to come together. Same with the 1689. Actually, they wrote a first draft in the 40s and like... Uh, like 50 years later, they were, they finished it and they put out their final form. So it's a much wiser process and it's got more widespread collective wisdom put into it. That's not what you're getting in your church's statement of faith. Now, I have pulled up two statements of faith from large denominations. I'm not going to say what they are, but remember when I brought up sin earlier? I defined sin for you, and I wanted to see... I'm going to go to two different statements of faith. These are for big denominations. A lot of churches, this is their standard. And I want to look. Where does What does it say about sin? If this is what they are supposed to be confessing, I want to define the word sin. So let's find it. Statement number one. All right, I'm going to look for the word sin. I see a category for God. It's not there because um, he's not sin. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the first time I see it. Uh, Jesus Christ, his eternal existence with the Father in pre-incarnate glory, in his virgin birth, sinless life. Okay, then there's no sin in the rest of that. Okay, whatever, so, so Jesus Christ was sinless. Whatever sin is, that this is the first mention of sin in this confession, uh, or in this statement of faith. Uh, whatever it is, Jesus didn't do it. He's sinless. All right, uh, where's the next time? Holy Spirit. Okay, under Holy Spirit... We believe in the absolute and essential deity and personality of the Holy Spirit who convinces of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Okay, so what I know about sin so far is that Jesus didn't do it and the Holy Spirit convinces people of it. I still don't know what it is, but whatever it is, those are things that happen. Okay, let's keep going. 
Where do I see sin next? Satan. Okay. Satan is the originator of sin. Okay. So once again, whatever sin is, Jesus doesn't do it. The Holy Spirit convinces people of it, and Satan's the originator of it. Okay, I think there was one more mention of sin in here. Okay, there, yeah, there it is. Man, under the category of man. Man divinely created in the image of God that he sinned, becoming guilty before God. Okay, so man sinned and is now guilty before God. This, But the originator is Satan. The Holy Spirit convinces of it. Jesus didn't do it. We have four mentions of sin in this statement of faith that a lot of churches will confess. And none of those statements are, are wrong. But I only know that because I have a, a definition of sin. If I don't know what sin is, I've just heard sin mentioned four times in this document, and it has not been defined. You have to go outside this statement to even understand this statement. What good is your statement of faith if you have to go to a hundred different places or to a historic confession to then reinterpret this thing, to actually know what it's saying? It doesn't even define sin. And then it's not mentioned again for the rest of this document. All right, number two. Let's go to the statement of faith number two, large denomination. What do they have to say about sin? Okay, I'm looking through the different the different ones, the different categories. Uh, kingdom of God. Oh, oh, Jesus revealed the Father and the kingdom of God by his sinless life. All right? Uh, after he died for our sin, God raised him from the dead. Jesus is sinless. He died for our sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit. Oh, I see nothing about sin here in the Holy Spirit, the Bible. Nothing about sin there. Creation. Uh, okay, as a result of human rebellion, sin and death entered the world. Okay, so we rebelled, and whatever that is. And, oh, one more mention. Salvation. Christ, who had no sin, became sin for us, offering himself on the cross. And that is the last mention of sin in this statement, too. Alright, so these are two very big denominations and I've, I'm reading their statements of faith, and they don't even... They mention sin a few times, but they don't even tell me what it is. I, I don't know. You see the issue here? We need a standard. We need to know what we're talking about. Be precise about it. Now, and that's, that's where confessions are so important. Kingdom builders are confessional builders. I want to make another note. If you are a Reformed Baptist... There is a wonderful confession called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Why would you use a statement of faith instead? Why? You have a great confession, the 1689, which explains things. Uh, I mean, you can go look up the 1689, look up what it says on sin. It has a great definition, which is very similar to the Westminster. It talks about our desires and our transgressing of the law of God. It's basically the same thing. That, that, there we go. That's helpful. I can confess that. A statement of faith that doesn't explain anything? That's a little bit tougher and less useful. Now, I, I will say that a statement of faith is better than nothing. I mean, if, if the lowest tier is no creed but Christ, that, that's going to be the lowest tier. Like You're not even like an, a combatant in the arena if that's your position. If you have a statement of faith, okay, that's better than nothing. At least you have that. But being confessional, I think, I think 
uh, very clearly the best position that we can take uh, for the reasons that I've already mentioned. So, but I'll take a statement of faith over nothing, no doubt. Now, a quick clarification on confessions before I close this one out. Confessions are not infallible. Okay, scripture is infallible. That means unable to fail. It cannot fail. Scripture is with, without the possibility of failing. It's God's word. And if it's God's word, that means it comes from a true deity. And so it's always true. It cannot be wrong. It's, scripture is infallible. Uh, confessions are not infallible, but confessions can be inerrant. There's a difference. Infallible means it cannot fail. Inerrant means it's without error. Those are different things. I can write an inerrant statement about ice cream. I can talk about its properties, I can talk about its temperature, and I could describe ice cream and have zero mistakes in it. I can do that. So that would be inerrant. But I'm not infallible in how I talk about ice cream. It's not like I can't make a mistake. I can, but I can put one out that is inerrant. And that's what confessions, that's, that's kind of the category of confessions. They are not infallible, but they can be inerrant. They can be pure summaries of what the Bible teaches. Now, that doesn't mean that they, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't tinker a little bit here and there. Some of these old confessions, for instance, called the Pope, the capital A Antichrist. That is the, the one talked about in Revelation. And most, just about everybody, has walked back from that and, and doesn't confess that anymore. We've tinkered with it a tiny bit. So they're not infallible, but these are very strong and faithful statements. Now, I said before, new confessions can still be made today. We, it's not like we're barred from making new confessions. Uh, however, given the general fracture of the church, I don't think we're going to get confessions. What we keep on getting is declarations and statements you know, like the Frankfurt Declaration that just came out. Like, you can't call that a confession. Only a certain amount of people are holding to it. Or the Nashville Statement from a few years ago. It's just a statement. You can't call that a confession either. We can make new statements and declarations, but they will not get to the confession category. We're so fractured. We're not saying things that the Church Universal can hold to. Uh, but theoretically, new confessions can still come. I think we'd have to be a more unified church to be able to to do that though so take away this from this episode a productive kingdom builder is a confessional builder what do you confess what do you believe give me something historically held to that's rich in depth broad in scope universal in application and ultimately faithful to scripture that's what i want a kingdom builder is a confessional builder. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Feel free to check out my website and join Patreon. I always appreciate that. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Go in the nations. Bye-bye.